so good to be together today. We're going to be reading from James chapter 2 this morning, so I'd ask that you would turn there. Just want to tell you a little story as I begin. It took place about a year ago. I was uh, in Bancroft visiting my parents. Uh, Dad and I, I think we're cutting some firewood, and after uh, a day of working outside, uh, my mom came out and said to my dad, there's a phone call here, uh, there's been a break-in at the church. So my parents live uh, about five minutes from the church they attend outside of Bancroft. Dad's a deacon there, so that's why he got the call. And a lady had shown up to do piano lessons with a student and found that the basement door was, was smashed in, the back door of the church was smashed in. So she was smart enough not to go in and uh, called my dad, called one of the other deacons, and uh, so... Dad and I went over, and the other deacon showed up, and uh, we perhaps foolishly decided, we'll go in and check things out. <clears throat> so I went to the top of the stairs. I was heading down into the basement, and as I was getting there, this man walks out in front of me, heading for the back door that he'd smashed in the night before. He was wearing a house coat, and what was interesting, as we found out later, he uh, obviously was homeless, and indeed, so found a church, smashed in the door, uh, was smart enough to uh, turn off the main power to get the alarm to stop alarming. I went to the kitchen, found some crackers, found, uh, this was really handy, he uh, was in need of some clothing, and he found there were some cardboard boxes full of secondhand clothing that was about to be sent to the mission field. So that, that worked out well for him. He was able to uh, kind of work his way through those clothes and find some things that he needed. And, and then evidently he fell asleep. And uh, he must have slept most of the day, so here we're showing up at around 4.30 at night. And uh, I assume he wasn't wearing a whole lot, he heard some voices in the church, he grabbed a house coat from the dress-up clothes, because every church has dress-up clothes, and in fact, I had to chuckle, um, it was like the coat of many colors, that's actually what it, what it looked like. And as I watched, watched him walk ahead of me and started to call out to him, the thing that was in my mind is, here's a guy who obviously has a lot of troubles in his life. And however this goes down, I wonder what his memory and his perception will be of breaking into a Christian church that has a cross on the front. How's this going to go? And what, what is this going to be like for him? And are we going to be able to communicate to him in some way, in spite of the fact that he's broken, he's broken the law, he's broken the window, are we gonna be able to communicate to him in some way that Jesus loves him? Now, that's kind of an extreme example of what James is gonna be talking about, but I, I want you to put yourself in my shoes in that moment as I saw the guy that we might call the bad guy right there in front of me, trying to get out that door. What would you do? Now James has a serious, similar question here in chapter two. He begins by saying, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges 
with evil thoughts. So here's James. He's writing to Christian people, and no doubt he's addressing an issue that he's either seen or heard about in this church, that this community of believers, we know they're believers. He's already described them as believers. Remember on the first day, we, we learned about how they were the diaspora, the ones that Christ had planted as his people throughout the known world at that time. He's writing to believers. In fact, in verse 1, he calls them that. He says, my brothers and sisters. He's talking to followers of Jesus. He's addressing an actual problem in the church, that when they gathered, in this case, the word synagogue is actually used. In other words, the believers gathered in the Jewish synagogue in order to gather in the name of Jesus and hear God's word preached and come together as a community. But when they were doing that, they were being discriminatory. Because if some rich person happened to come in who was kind of interested, what is this Christianity thing all about? They were quite interested in the rich person, quite kind to the rich person. But when the poor person comes in, and it should never surprise us when the poor, when the poor are attracted to the church of Jesus Christ. It should never surprise us. What should surprise us is when we can't love them the way that Jesus did. Why wouldn't the poor come to us? We say we follow Jesus. Wasn't Jesus the man who showed kindness to the poor, who fed the poor, who healed the sick? Surely his people might be able to help me. And yet in this case, and I wonder if we examine our own hearts, if we have to admit that this problem afflicts me, that I can be partial as I look at people on the outside, as I judge them based on their social status, their wealth, how educated they are. Is there something about them that's off-putting to me? This is something that afflicts all of us as human beings, and yes, it afflicts us as Christians, and so we have to hear this call of James. How do we react as we encounter people who are wealthy, versus people who are poor. Now I was thinking about if I really had done this message right, I would have done what other pastors have done. And maybe you've seen videos of this, where the pastor uh, dresses up as a homeless person and sits out at the main door as people are coming into church. Now you have to, you have to, you know, you gotta be, it's gotta be a good costume here. I saw one video of a pastor who did that he had the you know, he had the shopping cart and the sleeping bag and, and just the whole, the whole works. And you sit there, and in this case, obviously, he had someone in the bushes videotaping this whole thing. <laughs> and everyone has to make a choice as they come in to gather in the name of Jesus as to whether they will even stop, even look, let alone to consider whether there's something they can do to help. Are we discriminatory? Are we partial? Do we show favoritism? Or we can ask this question. Are we a welcoming church? I think it's on the banner here somewhere, isn't it? Maybe not. Is it there? Yeah, welcoming, the middle banner. This is the vision WB has WBC has set out for itself. We want to be a Christ-rooted church. We want to be a welcoming church. Well, that should be our goal because if we're following Jesus, we're following one who was always welcoming. 
Are we a welcoming church? So let me ask this. If people's perception of our welcome was based on you and how welcoming you are and whether you look people in the eye and whether you even say hello to anyone, whether you talk to someone you don't know, if our, if our reputation as being welcoming or not welcoming was based on you, I mean, that's the question we all have to ask ourselves. Now, you can say, oh yeah, but there's people out there at the door, like Rick and Doreen are often out there, they're pretty friendly. Neil and Roseanne, not bad. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just kidding. And it's good, we should have those people serving in those places, at the door and finding people and mingling and talking to them, but if it's only those four who are doing that ministry, most people will not find us to be a welcoming church. Now here's what I've heard so many times since I've come to Wallenstein, it's, and it's the awkward moment where you find yourself face to face with someone here in the foyer or in the auditorium and you don't know them. And you're trying to remember, have I seen them here before? But you can't remember. And so you say the, the, the question, are you new here? And they say, no, I've been here for four years. Where have you been? Now, this is happening, okay? Let's just, let's just all get the, the, here's another elephant in the room moment. It's happening. We have to forgive each other for this. There's too many people coming here that you're going to know everybody, and you're not going to notice who's all coming and going. Now, sometimes we need to ask better questions. How long have you been at Wallenstein? Right? That's a better question than are you new here? Because if they say, oh, it's my first week, well, that's, that's great. If they say three years, wow, how, I, how have I not met you before? Ask better questions. But when the awkward moment comes and you realize, here, I'm getting to know someone that's been here for a while and I didn't know, just let it, let it go. It's okay. Show some grace to each other and to yourself. That tension, I believe, is keeping many of us from contributing to a welcoming spirit in our church. For us to be a truly welcoming church requires every one of us. Not just a few people at the door, not just a few people, not just the elders, not just the extroverts, but all of us reaching out in love and kindness. Why should we do that? Because we are gathering here as the community of Jesus Christ. And when he was here on the earth, people flocked to him because they found in him a welcome. No matter where they came from in life, no matter what their status was or how, how, how much poverty they were dealing with, they found that Jesus would welcome them and we are his people and we are his body. So when we encounter people within this community, we have open hearts and we welcome. That is what the people of God do. But is it true of us? So let's ask ourselves this question. Are we selective in our acceptance of others? Are we selective? Isn't it interesting as we think back in the last couple of years how COVID and our opinions of COVID have become one of the key issues that we are discriminating against each other on? And whether you were into the freedom protest or you weren't into the freedom protest and that guy's got a flag on his truck and I don't know if I wanna to talk to him and vice versa. There's all kinds of ways that we are selective and discriminatory. 
We, we are gathering here in a church where we have people from the city and people who are rural. We, we gather in a church where we have people that are extremely wealthy and others who are not. We gather in a church with people who are extremely educated and others who've just got a public school education. And our calling as Christians is to love one another. But do we discriminate? Do we avoid certain people? How about age? I always love it when I see uh, some of our older members. Sorry, I looked at Glenn. I don't know why I looked at Glenn, but... I always love it when I see older people talking with younger people, but it's also very common to, to just see older people just talking to older people and just see younger people, especially, I think, just talking to younger people and just connecting with my age group and with my friends and, and with, with my network. But in the church, we work hard to overcome those differences. Isn't it great, by the way, to be in a church where we have older people like Glenn and younger people like me? It's, I mean, and even kids. We, we, have, we have it all. I, that's such a blessing. How about religious background? We celebrate the great things that God did through Ron Seabrook, especially in reaching out to the old colony community. We praise God for many, some sitting here today, who are from that community who've come to know Jesus. But it's not impossible for us to feel a kind of divide where we think of ourselves as, well, we're the kind of the normal Wallenstein people, and then here's these people from this, this old colony. Do we discriminate based on that? Or, or let me say it this way, are we less inclined to go and say hello to someone from a different religious background? It doesn't have to just be old colony, it could be anything. Political views, as I've mentioned during COVID, have flared among us. And how about past hurts? which are inevitable. Some of you folks have been here for 10, 20, 30 years. Stuff has happened. People have hurt you. Probably you've hurt someone. And we have these, these awkward memories of things that have taken place and we're still feeling hurt and so we just avoid certain people. What is James saying to us? Do not show favoritism. He could not say it more clearly in verse 1. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, they must not show favoritism. My hope is, as I've talked about these things, is that perhaps we're able to honestly look into our hearts and say, this is a bit of a problem for me. I know I can. And so the message here this morning is this, that we must fight favoritism. We must fight against this dynamic in our lives and in our church, every one of us. But why? Why should we fight against this judgmentalism? James is going to give us a number of reasons, and we've already read the first one. I read through those early verses about the rich man with rings coming in and the poor man with filthy clothing. And then in verse 4, as James describes this partiality, he says, Have you not discriminated among yourselves? And listen, and become judges with evil thoughts. That's strong language. That when we show partiality, I like this person, I don't like this person. I'll talk to this person, I'll avoid that person. 
And all of us, I'm sure, can see that tendency in our own hearts. And James says that when we behave that way as followers of Jesus, we have become judges with evil thoughts. Isn't that interesting? He's just started these words by saying, brothers and sisters, God's people, followers of Jesus. And he concludes the sentence by saying, you got evil thoughts. We know what Jesus taught about judgmentalism. It's all through Scripture, actually. And so here's the first reason why we must fight favoritism is that it is evil judgmentalism when we behave that way. And some of you maybe already have a person in mind, someone in this room with you who you've been avoiding. And you've got to hear the Word of God say this. Before we move forward, we park on this. This is evil judgmentalism. Reminds me of what we learned about James in our first message a few weeks ago. James, who was the uh, natural or half-brother of Jesus, also son of Mary and Joseph, and as he grew up with Jesus and Jesus began his ministry, we find out in the Gospels that James and even Mary, mother of Jesus, were highly skeptical of Jesus. It tells us in one place that they, really, they, they literally thought he was out of his mind. So they're coming to try and stop him from carrying on in this ministry and have, having these people flock to him and doing these miracles. So here's James standing in judgment over Jesus, his brother. And yet when he saw Jesus risen from the dead, everything changed. And the brother who stood in judgment over Jesus now finds himself on his knees before Jesus. By the way, did you notice, we, we saw this in the very first chapter, very first verse, where James calls himself a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see what he says here in verse, chapter 2, verse 1? As believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. James's heart has changed from standing in judgment over Christ to being completely humbled to the point where he won't even say, bro's my brother. All he can say of Jesus is that he is Lord Jesus Christ. He is glorious. Now, a lot of us would say, well, actually, yeah, that's what I believe too. I'm like James. I believe that Jesus is Lord Jesus Christ. I have bowed the knee to him. The problem is that we might think that in our hearts, but if we also look into our lives and see that having trusted in Christ and kneeled before Christ, that now I have stood up on my feet and begun looking down at others, we're going to find out in this chapter. James says, are you sure? Are you sure you know Jesus? Are you sure you've bowed the knee to Jesus because it's actually impossible to truthfully, honestly bow before Christ as our glorious Lord and then stand up and rise up in judgment over other people? James is going to tell us completely incongruent. It's why it's evil. It's evil judgmentalism. We have found ourselves to be sinners and we fall before Christ as the only hope of our salvation. We come to him in repentance and in confession. We come to him humbly as our only hope. How is it that then we could stand up in judgment over others? No wonder 
James says, this is evil. It's wrong. You can read the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 18, and Jesus tells a whole story about this. Talks about a man who's, who owes his master uh, in, in, in unbelievable debt. Billions of dollars. And when he's threatened with jail and the loss of his family, he begs the master and finally the master relents and forgives the whole thing. And then immediately that servant goes out and finds someone who owes him a much smaller debt, grabs him by the throat and says, now you're going to pay up. That is what we are like when we come to church worshiping Jesus and celebrating the gospel and saying, yeah, I believe in Jesus all the while standing in judgment over others. James says it's evil. We've got to fight against this. Well, there's another thing we find here a little bit later on. Verse 8, James writes this, if you really keep the royal law, what's the royal law? He's going to tell us. It's found in Scripture. Love your neighbor as yourself. Remember that? That was an Old Testament law. Jesus brought into the New Testament when he was being asked questions about, you know, how do you summarize the law? And this was one of the ways you summarize the whole Old Testament law. Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus brings it right into the New Testament and into our times. James calls it the royal law. Why? Because that's the law of the king, the Lord, Jesus Christ. This is the way of his kingdom is that we love each other the way we love ourselves. Let's read on. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. Then he goes on to show the seriousness of this. In verse 10, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point, is guilty of breaking all of it. Do you realize what he's just said? He points us to our favoritism, to our partiality, to our prejudice, and the ways that we fail to keep the royal law. Because surely if we're honest with ourselves, we're all sitting here thinking, I don't do this perfectly. And here's James telling us, yeah, and if you don't, if you don't fully love your neighbor as yourself, you are a lawbreaker. He goes on to say in verse 11, He who said, You shall not commit adultery, also said, You shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. You know what a lot of us do in that verse? What do we do? Shrug our shoulders and say, Well, I haven't done either of those things. And somehow we've forgotten the verse before, where James tells us, that if we do not love our neighbor as we love ourselves, we are lawbreakers. I almost think he purposely built this in to give people an out. If you want an out, if you want to say, oh no, I'm righteous, I'm not a lawbreaker. See, I haven't committed murder, I haven't committed adultery. We, we can gloss over what James has already said, but if we're honest, we've got to go back and look at it again. If you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. 
So now we have a problem. And here's the second reason I'm going to say we must fight favoritism in our lives because it violates God's law. Partiality and showing favoritism and lacking love for people where we we pick and choose who I'm going to love and who I'm going to be kind to and who I'm going to be a friend to. It's actually a violation of God's law. It's proof that we are sinners. It's proof that we are unworthy to be the children of God. It's why Paul would later say, you have fallen short of the glory of God. You know what makes God glorious? Is that he loves us all. Even the unworthy ones. So we've got to fight favoritism because basically James is saying, if you act this way, you're, you're acting like an unregenerate person. You are acting like a sinner who does not know Jesus, who is in danger of hellfire. That's what he's saying. And that's where we come to as we come to the end of this passage. Verse 12. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. And then notice verse 13 here. Judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. You know what I think happens in a church like Wallenstein where the history of our church is people who've come out of other religious systems that were very oriented around law and works. Salvation isn't a gift, it's something that I earn through my own righteousness. And then people come along like John Martin and others decades ago and preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that no, we're not saved by our good works, we're saved by Christ alone. Simply by our faith, we repent of our sin and we trust in Christ. And the danger is in a place like Wallenstein, even as we continue to preach that and celebrate that, is something that some have called easy believism. Because we've so convinced ourselves that salvation has nothing to do with my own righteousness, that we fail to recognize the seriousness of verses like this. It's in the Bible, folks, but you can't avoid this. Verse 13 is in the Bible. There it is. Judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who's not been merciful. Here's the third reason why we have to fight favoritism. Folks, it leads to judgment. This is the word of God. Now, of course, we don't believe that if you fall into judgmentalism and partiality, that you who once were saved and have now lost your salvation, somehow you're going to have to get it back again. That's not what Scripture is teaching. What this verse is teaching us is that if you are a person who shows no mercy, having claimed by your testimony that God has shown you mercy, you're not actually telling the truth. Because you can't possibly know the mercy of God and turn around like you're blind and live in hateful judgmentalism on others. It's not possible. That's why Jesus taught this. Matthew 6, and this isn't the only place. It's in the New Testament, folks. It's true. It's real. If you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. And if the Father doesn't forgive your sins, you're not saved. And it doesn't matter if you can point to a moment when you went to camp and you prayed a prayer doesn't matter if you can say I've gone to this church my whole life what the scripture is saying is if this is characteristic of you 
there's a great danger that you don't actually know the gospel. And we have to examine ourselves. Because favoritism leads to judgment. If we have no mercy in our heart, if we, if we can't feel what I felt in that moment, this conflict in my mind as I watched this, this man who'd smashed through the window and stolen, and, and yet at least have this conflict in our hearts of, God loves this guy. This, this guy needs Jesus. Let alone the people who come into our church who maybe make us feel uncomfortable. They're different than us. I don't, I don't relate to them. If you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive you. If you do not love people, are you really a follower of Jesus? Now, if we stop the message here, it's not much of a message. So I want us to go back through this passage and see the hope that it brings. And the fourth reason why we fight favoritism is this. It is contrary to the gospel. And we're going to see in a moment, this is the way we fight favoritism, is through the good news of Jesus Christ. Notice what he had said in verse 1. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. What, what is he simply saying here? If you claim to know Jesus, our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, you must not. It is incongruent. It is inconsistent for you to say that I'm a follower of Jesus. And don't you love what he calls him here? Our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. He's reminding us of who Jesus is, that in his own nature, in his own identity, he is King of kings and Lord of lords. We talked a couple of weeks ago that if we could somehow see Jesus for who he really is, we would be blinded by his radiant beauty and glory. That's who he is. And yet, the only reason we have any hope of salvation from being these people who are partial and judgmental and who lack love, the only hope we have to be rescued from that kind of a heart is through Jesus, who is glorious. He is Lord, Jesus Christ. He, King of kings, Lord of lords, Prince of glory and of all heaven. And what did he do? He laid it all aside and he came down to our world and was afflicted by the mess and the muck and the stench of our world. His glory isn't just that he would radiate Light and, and, and beauty, if we could see him, his glory is in his character. And so when he was walking on a road one day and this leper, and everyone knew what to do when a leper showed up. A leper wasn't even supposed to be on the road. Get out of here. Unclean. But when a leper appeared before Jesus saying, if you're willing, you could make me clean. The glorious Lord Jesus didn't run away. Didn't look down his nose. Didn't act disgusted. The scripture tells us that he went to the man. And he touched the man. And he said, I am willing. And he healed him. This is the gospel. This is, this is our hope of, 
being rescued from this wicked, evil favoritism is, first of all, that Jesus showed us something completely different that though he was the king of glory, he was willing to come down and save a wretch like me. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. How do we fight favoritism? Well, we... We find, we find our rescue in this Christ. There's something else we need to see, though, and we see it in verse 5, where James writes, Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, challenging them about their favoritism toward the rich, lack of love for the poor. He says, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in the faith, rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Here's the second reason we see the beauty of the gospel as our hope, if we see this correctly. Hear it again. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world? Paul actually wrote something similar in Corinthians. Not many mighty, not many rich. God has chosen the weak and God has chosen the poor. And if we're reading that right, what we need to be hearing in those verses and verses like this, he's talking about me. Now, what does that mean? It means that, does the world look down on Christians today? Yes. But here's the bigger thing that I want us to see in this, is that if we really understand the gospel, if we really understand that verse on the screen behind me, what we have to understand is, I'm the poor one. I was the one who was in abject poverty, maybe not socially, maybe not financially, but spiritually. Do we see ourselves in the story of the leper? Do we recognize that we had such spiritual poverty that we, as many have said over the years, were spiritually bankrupt? We had absolutely nothing, nothing but rags as we appeared before Jesus, poor, awful, wretched sinners and said, Jesus, if you're willing, you could make me clean. See, that's the gospel. And if we've come to Christ, that's, what, that's our reality. We've acknowledged that we were spiritually poor and bankrupt. We've come to Christ as the only one who can save us. And what James is saying is, don't you, don't you realize how incongruent this is that now you're going to turn around and judge someone who's socially bankrupt? forgetting that you were spiritually bankrupt, which was far worse. And you're going to judge the poor person. There was a time when John the Baptist was questioning his faith, and after having called Jesus the Lamb of God and pointing his disciples to follow Jesus, he ended up in jail, and he began to have doubts about this whole thing. And is Jesus of Nazareth really the Christ? And he sends his disciples to go to Jesus. Are you really the one that we're supposed to be waiting for? And Jesus sends word back. Go, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. It is actually a characteristic of Christianity that God loves the poor. He loves 
to get the good news of rescue to those who are poor in the eyes of the world. It should be true of us as a church, in part because we see ourselves in this verse. We were the blind ones. We were the lame ones. We were the sick ones. We were the deaf ones. We were the dead ones. We were the poor ones. And once we get that, once we understand the truth of that, it opens our hearts to those who are facing all of these things on the physical plane. Sickness, blindness, poverty. We see all through that because we know God rescued us in an even worse predicament. How do we fight against this favoritism as we look to the gospel? There's one more as we read these final verses. Verse 12, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. And then that verse we've found so potent, judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. And then this precious phrase, mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I hope that we're here today as people who just absolutely celebrate the mercy of God. It's like the blind men who encountered Jesus and they cried out, have mercy on us. You know, you, you can only say have mercy on me when you know deep in your soul you are not worthy. Do you see the connection between those two things? You can only say have mercy when you're acknowledging your unworthiness. So we celebrate the gospel. We combat favoritism with the gospel by understanding the great mercy of God to us. And we are able to show mercy to others because we remember, if not for the, the, the wonderful mercy of God toward us, if not for this phrase, the truth of this in our own lives, mercy triumphing over judgment, the truth is, I deserve God's judgment. I've seen that in this passage. I'm the one who's broken God's law. I'm the one who's shown favoritism. But there's mercy. Oh, sweet mercy of God. Peter wrote about it this way. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So what do we need? We need to celebrate the mercy of God toward us. And the more we celebrate God's mercy to us as unworthy sinners who've been rescued by his kindness and grace, the more likely we will be to extend kindness to others. Isn't that just simple? Isn't that the way that it is? So we need the gospel because in the gospel we find this new birth. We are saved. We are born again through Jesus Christ to be enabled to live this kind of love and grace. It's only through salvation in Christ. But then on a practical level, as we all find ourselves still wrestling with this old nature and this flesh, how is it that we fight this? And the answer is, we go back again and again to review the beauty of the gospel of Jesus. Again and again, we go back and we gaze at Jesus and we think deeply about his kindness and we think of him 
reaching out to that leper and healing the blind men, and we put ourselves into their dusty sandals, and we recognize it's only because of Jesus that I have been rescued. And we go back to the cross again and again, shamelessly, because it's going back to the cross again and again that we find this gospel message. I find myself at the foot of the cross as a desperate sinner. And I hear Christ saying of me, Father, forgive him. This is how we fight favoritism. I believe this is one of the reasons why we have communion. We can talk about all kinds of reasons why we share communion together, but one of them is in order for us to be a community of Christ that's really living out the character of Christ as we love each other and as we love those who come in among us. How can we possibly do that? We do that by going back to the cross again and again to celebrate this our only hope. Because it's only through Jesus that I can be saved from what I was and it's only through Jesus that I'm transformed into what I will be. And it's through our thinking and remembering and focusing on Jesus that this transformation takes place in deeper and deeper ways. So we take communion now. Communion is a celebration of the people of God. And it's possible that there are some here today who, if you were really pressed, if I said, do you really know Jesus? Have you trusted in Christ? You might say no. And so I just want to caution you and say, this is, this is the table of Christ. This is, this is what he offers to those who've come to his table. If you know that you're not a follower of Jesus, uh, then we don't want you to do this flippantly. But here's what I want you to know. If you've never come to Christ for salvation, this moment right here could be your moment to make what you're doing physically true spiritually. Because taking something into our bodies like food is actually an act of faith. It's a beautiful picture of what it means to trust in Christ. This bread doesn't taste too good, does it? Some of you made sure you mentioned that on the uh, communion uh, communion survey. Yeah, that stuff, ooh. But we take it into our body, whether we like it or not. It becomes us. Communion is a picture of what we've done if we've trusted in Christ. He's come to live within us. In fact, Jesus even said that, that we have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. That was a metaphor to describe kind of the same metaphor we're doing here. So what I want you to know is if you've never trusted in Jesus, you can take this this morning if it's a symbol of a real faith that you're choosing right now to receive Christ as your life, as your salvation, you're, you're welcome to do that. If you're not ready to do that, I would ask you to abstain. For those of us who've trusted Christ, we take the bread now to remind ourselves of the suffering of Jesus for our sin. His body was broken so that we can be made whole, completely whole. And if you're here today and you've been convicted as I have by some of the things we've heard about favoritism and you realize I've, I've sinned the sin of, of not loving and of judgment, of judgmentalism, the answer is right here. In Christ alone, 
He makes us righteous. He forgives our sins. He makes us whole. It's only as we trust in Christ. So let's remember Jesus. Let's remember his suffering for us as we share this bread together. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your willingness to leave the beauty of heaven, your rightful place on a throne of glory. You were willing to come down to this place to rescue us in our spiritual poverty, in the stench of our sin. We thank you that you were willing to suffer and take upon yourself on the cross all all of our sin, all of our unworthiness. And we thank you too, Lord, now for this juice that we share, a reminder of your blood poured out as a, an atonement, a, a covering, a payment for all of our sin. And in this, Lord, we're reminded that we have full and complete salvation through Christ. We give you thanks. Let's take the juice. And brothers and sisters, the, if I can use the word success or our ability to live out this Christian life and to truly follow Jesus is dependent on our willingness to live right here. Not just, not just at the end of a service on Sunday morning, but we live right here all through the week. We remember, <laughs> if not for Jesus, if not for the cross, I am so lost. And this now is our marching orders. Because now we are called to lay down our lives in love for one another and for the world. So may communion remind us of this and make it true of us. We're going to sing one song in closing and then I'll come and pray. Maybe you heard these words of James today and realized that if you don't love everyone perfectly you've actually broken God's law and that it's only through faith in Christ that you can be made whole is there a decision that you need to make today I hope if there is you will make that decision and you will tell somebody I can stick around up front and chat you know someone else here you can talk to I'm sure let us not be hearers of the word and not respond to what the Spirit is saying to us today. So Lord, we come before you. I pray, Lord, for courage and obedience, that whatever your Holy Spirit has laid on our heart today, that we would respond. If there's anyone here, Lord, if it's me that has a heart of stone, I pray that you would smash that and soften my heart and make me responsive to what you're calling me to do. May that be true of all of us here. Lord, is there someone here that needs to be saved, that needs to come to salvation in Christ alone? I pray that today would be the day. And Lord, if there's people here, maybe many of us here, who would say, and we, we are confident that we are followers of Jesus, but we have not been living in love. We have not been the welcoming person here in this building. We've been withholding friendship with someone 
in our life that you've called us to love. I pray, Lord, that we would confess that today, that you'd change us and make us more like Jesus. Lord, this is for you. We read today that our Lord Jesus is glorious. And how is it that you allow us to share in that, that you choose to make us glorious like he is? Heaven forbid, Lord, that we would stand in the way of your transforming grace, of you making us more like our glorious Jesus. We pray this in your great name. Amen. Thank you.